The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. Well, it is that time again, Disability Law Show. Good to have you with us. Tamara Gopian is here, partner, uh, Samfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Tamar's always there if you want to contact her privately and for a lengthier chat when we're not doing the show. How do you do that? Uh, the phone number's a good place to start, right? one 821 5900 email address, which we're going to bounce over to here in a moment, is help at disabilityrights.ca. And for uh, short, concise memos on LTD, you can also use the website ltdfaq.ca. Read all the points. You can download them on a PDF if you want, but it's all there for you anonymously and absolutely free of charge, ltdfaq.ca. Before we get to our emails and other questions today, uh, tomorrow, what do you got cooking? What's, uh, what's happening with your week that was or case of the day? What you been working on? Well, this one is sort of near and dear to my heart. I've got a couple of things I wanted to talk about, John, at the top of the show. And one of the things is a milestone that our firm actually, uh, you know, met uh, about a week ago. Uh, We have been in business for almost two decades now. And I think what was most staggering to me, John, and we had a celebration, folks, for those who might be listening, and we all got together, everyone at the firm uh, from across the country, because we have offices in British Columbia and Alberta and Ontario. And so we service people across this wonderful nation. And we all got together and, and, you know, with, with, virtual meetings and this sort of thing that have been the norm the last number of years it was just a wonderful wonderful opportunity for us to get together and celebrate the firm and here's what stuck with me uh our founding one of our founding partners uh lior uh did some opening remarks and in those remarks john he mentioned that we have serviced now something like over thirty thousand clients yeah. uh since the inception of the firm and that just resonated with me i thought my goodness what an amazing uh, milestone what is an amazing testament to the firm uh and really just something that was conceived by these two founding partners that we have uh sivan and lior uh and the rest is sort of history don't you think john i mean we've come a long way uh but amazingly you know have been servicing these clients both on the disability side and on the employment side some personal injury work that we do as well it's sort of all marries together and here we are after all this time, we've grown through COVID and it was just a wonderful time. And so I wanted to uh, open our show today, just mentioning that and, you know, inviting individuals to contact us and, and talk to us as we have with so many and have helped so many others. So it was a good one. Uh, we saw John there too, eh, John? Uh, it was a good event. Good times. For all. Oh yeah, man. Loved it. it was, Loved it. It was awesome. It was awesome. So, look, um, I'm going to sort of do an improper segue and just talk about disability law. I'm just going to do sort of a 180 right <laughs> cool. away. Cool. Uh, and talk about something else that's sort of near and dear to my heart, I suppose, uh, in a vastly different way. And that's the appeal process, John. <laughs> so, you know, I'm going to I'm going to talk about things that I like and then things that I don't like so much. And that's the appeal process. You know, I, I wanted to start the show about this because this week I actually had two callers, uh, two consults with two different individuals who said to me, well, tomorrow, look, I'm just going to try the appeal process. And I thought I'd call your firm and just talk to you about what that process meant. Um, one of the callers actually said, hey, here's my disability policy. Can you take a look and, and tell me what's in there about the appeal process so that I'm better informed about what to do? And sort of this struck me because 
it means we're not talking about it enough, John. Maybe we do, maybe we don't, but let's talk about this process because it's not in the policy. Most disability policies actually don't talk about appeals at all whatsoever. And so it's fair for individuals to contact us and say, look, where do I find this in my policy? You're not going to find it. It's not in there. So this is a process that insurance companies have conceived of that allows them to have you continue in their realm, to have you continue with the insurance company dictating on what's happening with your disability claim. I suspect it has something to do with their regulators, perhaps some checks and balances. But at the end of the day, the fact that it's not in the policy and it's not really part of any kind of requirement, it means that the insurance company is being arbitrary with the claimant and saying, you have this deadline to appeal. You can appeal one, two, three times, you know, go through this, show us again and again why your disability claim should be paid after we cut you off. And typically after we cut you off prematurely or on shaky ground. And so people look at these letters, they say, okay, now my benefits are ending. I'm being invited to contact the insurance company again to provide further medical information and appeal. Well, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. Why wouldn't I do this? And here's the biggest trouble. And I said this very plainly to the, to the individuals I spoke with this week, John. I said, look, of course you have the right to appeal. You, you can do that if you'd like to do that. But I can tell you that in our experience, in the majority of cases, it takes a heck of a long time. There's three levels of appeal. Mm-hmm. You're usually getting the same one or two people that have already looked at your file to look at it again. And it's just simply human nature. Once a decision has been made, there's no impetus, there's no requirement for the insurance company to change their mind and to sort of say, yeah, you know what, we were wrong. We should really just start your claim again and start paying you benefits again. There's no financial benefit for the insurance company to do that. So they're gonna try and run down that time clock to get you to continue to appeal because they know what I know, which is that you only have two years from the initial denial letter to start the legal process. And I know that process can be daunting for people, which is why we do free consultations all the time and talk to people as much as they need. But here's the thing, the legal process, as daunting as that may sound, actually makes the insurance company my problem. And I put it within the legal process, which has checks and balances, by the way, it has requirements that say the insurance company must respond by a given period of time they have to mediate within a given period of time. They have to come down and talk to us, get to the table and talk to us about resolving these claims. The appeal process doesn't afford any of that. You're just an individual having to battle the insurance company to try and convince them time and again that your disability benefits should be paid. And so this is why it's frustrating for individuals and really for me when I hear people saying, look, I'm just gonna give it a try. I'm like, yeah, give it a try. But if you let me help you, I can get there much faster. And by the way, they know me, they know our firm, they've worked with us all the time. They generally understand that if we're gonna take on a claimant and a client, there's a basis for that. There's usually good reasons to challenge the insurance company. I try and explain that to individuals during our consultations. And I say, look, you know, if I can get there faster, please allow me to do that. And then you're not mystified by this, you know, 40 page policy that doesn't talk about appeals. And you're not mystified by the insurance company saying, oh, by the way, an appeal again, 
And if you've run out of appeals, you can contact our company again through our, um, I think they offer the ombudsman or somebody like this to complain. But by the way, they don't have any requirements to make us pay you your benefit. Guess what? A judge does. And insurance companies know this. A judge can make a ruling that you meet the test under your policy for disability and that you're entitled to benefits. And so this is why the legal claim is so effective, is that it doesn't wear you down. It doesn't take that yeah. time frame in, you know, and putting that into the hands of the insurance company to allow them to keep you in their process and essentially get people to a point sometimes six months down the line or more where they say, oh, gosh, maybe I should just go back to work. Well, you know, if you're not well enough to work and your doctors have said you can't work and you have that medical support, then why would you let the insurance company off the hook? So this was my frustration. Had a couple of calls this week on appeals, and I thought I'd start off our show talking about my favorite topic. There you go. Yeah, it's, it's it's always educational for sure, and everybody should have their uh, their eyes open for sure moving into this. And if if it's if it well, it's going to be confusing. So you just want to make that phone call, and just uh, start baseline with a chat to Tamara and her team. How do you do it? One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Want to get to uh, to Carmen? First email of the day says, uh, "Hey Tamara, my husband was just diagnosed with terminal throat cancer. Uh, he'd been battling several health issues for the past three years, and was given various diagnoses for his many symptoms like fatigue and." Dizziness, chest pain, weight loss, and depression. He also turned to alcohol for a period of time to self-medicate. How about that? That's uh, We've heard that story uh, before, Tamar, mm-hmm. indeed, the self-medication thing. The insurance company knew all of this except for the recent cancer diagnosis and denied my husband more LTD benefits anyway at the change of definition last year. We tried a bunch of appeals, but I'm tired of fighting them, and I want to focus on my husband right now for however long he has. I'm wondering what happens with his claim if he passes away. Wow. What a, what a tough situation, Carmen. I'm glad you've reached out. So let me answer that first part of your question. There's a lot to unpack, but that first part of what happens with someone's claim if they pass away. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, John, it survives them. So if... Carmen's husband has been owed disability benefits for a period of time. And, you know, let's say it's a year, you know, they've been through a bunch of appeals. I've got to assume it's at least a year, sadly. Um, Then, you know, if the husband passes away, then Carmen, if she's the estate uh, trustee, can then bring a legal claim against the insurance company to pursue the disability benefits that were owed to her husband up to the point where they stopped paying or cut him off. I'm not sure exactly which is it in her situation. Uh, And then all the way up to the point where he passed away. And in fact, some disability policies even talk about survivor benefits. And so it could be that Carmen herself is actually entitled to an additional amount under certain policies that say, look, if you pass away while you have a valid disability claim, not only do the benefits get paid, there's like a runoff period, but your survivor or your executor of your estate, your beneficiary will also get, you know, some component of these benefits uh, for a runoff period, say three months or so. So I think getting the policy in, in this situation will be important to figure that part out and really to understand, you know, what happens with the benefits should someone pass away? Because of course, naturally, once you're deceased, you know, you cannot obviously establish ongoing total disability, but most certainly you can up to that point. So John, why don't we pick this up maybe after our next break? Uh, and I can talk a little bit more about Carmen and her husband's situation, just some of the things that she's described in her email. 
Absolutely. With that, we'll take that short break and uh, let Tamar continue on the other side. So stick with us. In the meantime, write this down. You want to reach out for uh, your own questions privately, you can do so. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the email address we always use. Phone number 1-855-821-5900. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. All right, thanks so much for uh, for hanging with us through that uh, short break here. Disability Law Show, Tamara Gopin, always your go-to person when reaching out beyond the hour of this show. And you think, John, how do you do it? Simple, right? 1-855-821-5900. That number's toll-free. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And any other questions, something comes to mind, if you don't have uh, you know time for a phone call, just type it into mydisabilityquestions.com. That resource, free and anonymous. As well, I want to pick it up where we left off tomorrow, talking about Carmen, uh, her husband, terminal throat cancer, and dealing with the insurance company. What happens generally to the policy and the payout uh, if he passes and when he passes for uh, for Carmen? Yeah, John, I wanted to pick up on a couple of points. One thing I wanted to clarify was this. The disability policy will say something to the effect of your eligibility for benefits will end upon certain things happening. Okay. Some policies will say, well, if you're no longer employed, for example, or let's say you accept a retirement or some kind of pension, then the eligibility for LTD benefits ends. And the most important one uh, and relevant to Carmen's situation is if the claimant dies, if, if someone passes, then the disability benefits end at that point in time. And so these are typical eligibility requirements that exist in most disability policies that I've seen. And so this is why the policy is important to obtain because you want to understand, look, what can happen in a situation like this? And does it mean that I still have rights for benefits? And yes, most likely if there's a period of time that hasn't been paid, that should have been paid, and most certainly from what Carmen describes, it looks like it should have absolutely been paid, John, uh, then there is a basis for a legal claim. And it does make sense to actually pursue it uh, once you've dealt with the estate. Now, I certainly don't want our listeners to think that I know much about estate law. I do not. And you will need to get some estate advice if you're in a situation like this. But the core messaging here is that just because uh, a claimant is terminal or is expected to pass or has passed doesn't mean that the claim, the disability claim, isn't crystallized as it relates to rights under that policy. That's the main messaging here in a situation like this. I think that what I'm more interested in really is what could be the possible basis that the insurance company has denied in a situation like this. Clearly, Carmen's husband had a number of symptoms, dizziness, chest pain, weight loss, fatigue, you know, all of these things together the symptoms are significant, John. And the courts have said this. They've said, look, if you've got a series of symptoms, even without a diagnosis, that prevents you from working, and your doctors are supporting, by the way, you shouldn't be working, which is Carmen's husband's situation, then you should be getting your disability benefit paid. And Carmen adds to us this idea of, you know, look, you know, he was self-medicating with alcohol. That shouldn't matter, John. Alcoholism in and of itself is a disability and is also compensable. 
even though insurance companies like to deny these types of claims. And so I wonder whether that component is really what's driving what's happening here with Carmen, Carmen's husband's claim. Uh, so I want to see the letters that, you know, the insurance company provided to them to, you know, say to them, look, we don't think this is a compensable claim. But most certainly you can see the process, right? So he's got all of these symptoms, all of these health issues that ultimately get diagnosed with throat cancer. You know, it makes sense. The pieces of the puzzle make sense. And so the insurance company sort of burying their head in the sand and waiting out, sadly, what is the ultimate out outcome for Carmen's husband is actually problematic for the insurance company just on its face, right? Like, can you imagine how the insurance company would justify continuing to deny a claimant like this to a court? What's a judge gonna do with a situation like this, John? I can tell you, they're not gonna look kindly upon the insurance company that during this time of need, where this individual really needed an income support as he's struggling with his health issues, so much so that he's self-medicating, that the insurance company keeps saying no, and no, and no. Multiple appeals is what Carmen described to us. So this to me is sort of screaming out a situation where legal relief is absolutely a must, even if the outcome of this is likely that unfortunately her husband will pass. I think it makes sense to get involved and do this more formally, particularly since she's been so frustrated in having to deal with the appeal process and the insurance company. And I absolutely want to validate that need that she wants to just focus on the husband right now and, and them together and working this through. I absolutely understand that. So let, make it my problem. As I said at the top of the show, you know, these appeal processes can be very frustrating. And the longer the time goes, the more likely that individuals just sort of give up. And that's what the insurance company wants. That's what's so frustrating about this appeal process. Yeah, they want you to give uh, give up and just run out of steam. But uh, again, to the rescue, at least, or at least for uh, to begin this thing, make that phone call. And uh, just like Carmen did, reach out through email. You can do that as well anytime. That's one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca. I got to thank Carmen again for being uh, brave enough to write in and expose her particular issue on the uh, the show today. You know, if let me ask you this: so if, if it comes to a matter of someone, maybe they're uh, they're at home and they're doing other things over the past couple of years with COVID, and they've They've decided to uh, flex their financial muscle. Maybe they're earning some income from a, a rental property they got or they're selling stocks while they're getting LTD. Do they have to report that income to the insurance company? Mm, good question, John. So, you know, the starting point in my mind is that if it's not income earned by working, so if you're not employed per se and doing some employment duties that results in you getting this income, then, then no, it's, it's passive, right? You've got investments or perhaps you're pulling out savings because you're on disability and you know you need further income support beyond what the disability benefit pays. And by the way, we know the disability benefit usually is only two thirds of what you're making when you were working. Mm -hmm. then, then no, I don't think there is a positive obligation on a claimant to have to disclose this to the insurance company. But there's a bit of a caveat to my advice, John, and it's this. If you're not sure, you should get a copy of the policy. Don't, don't hesitate. You can write to your insurance company. If you put it in writing to them, they are obligated to provide you with the actual wording, not the booklet that your, your company would have provided you, your employer would have provided you, but the actual wording, and then send it to me. <laughs> like I can look at it. I know exactly where to look to sort of say to you, yep, you know what? This, these are your obligations under this policy. And if it doesn't capture this type of passive type income, as I described it, then no, there is no reporting requirement to the insurance company. 
Having said this, the insurance company, of course, would say most likely otherwise, John. They get you to sign a whole bunch of forms when you first apply for disability benefits. And buried in this in the small print usually is something that says, look, if you get any sort of sources of income, any kind of income, you need to let us know. And in my mind, that makes sense if we're talking about other disability benefits or things that the insurance company has in their policy that they would get credit for or deductions for. And we talk about this a lot on the show, the, the CPP disability uh, benefit, for example, the government-supported disability benefit. That is something that the insurance company is obligated to know, and it is routinely included in the insurance policies that say, look, we're going to pay you this disability benefit, but if you get CPP disability, we get to deduct whatever you're getting from the government for that benefit. Sort of makes sense because, look, it's a disability benefit as well. It's also an income support. I, I sort of can get my head around that, I suppose. But if someone is accessing other sources of income because they need to survive, because they don't have enough to support themselves, and if the policy doesn't provide for that, and if it's not considered employment income, then no, I don't think that the insurance company needs to know about it. Uh, and frankly, I mean, look, you know, I do want to advocate that individuals should have an open and honest dialogue with their adjuster, their insurance company while they're on claim. I don't see a lot of downside, I suppose, in letting the insurance company know. But if strictly, you know, we want an understanding as to whether or not there is that obligation, then you do want to look to see what your policy says about it. And any other else, uh, other time you want to reach out, you could do so to tomorrow and her team, one 821 5900 Want to get to a, another email with our time remaining. This time it's uh, it's Paige, says, hey, tomorrow I'm 51-year-old female. I've been employed by the same company for 18 years. My condition got worse over the years despite treatment. I was approved for LTD in 2018. I was sent for a medical examination by my insurer, and the doctor made all kinds of recommendations. I've done some, but my depression slash anxiety isn't improving, and the continued therapy sessions are difficult to absorb due to a decline in my cognitive abilities. My question is, at what point can treatment be actually causing more stress, more anxiety and depression, and most of all, fear of being cut off if I don't comply? My doctor does not feel I'm capable to return to any job, but the insurance company is trying to override his medical opinion. Is there anything I can do? Yes, yes, there are things that you can do. And I think that, you know, frankly, she's been doing them, John, which is to continue active treatment, uh, continue to abide by the advice that she's getting from her own doctors about her ability or inability to work. And I think what's frustrating is that there is this process for rehabilitation in every disability policy that I've seen. So let's talk about that for a moment. The insurance company will have these terms and conditions under the policy that say, look, you know, we'll pay this disability benefit. These are the two tests to qualify. We talk about that in the show, John, mm-hmm. own occupation, any occupation. Yep. And then you keep reading the policy and you get past all of that beginning stuff. And you get to some section that talks about rehabilitation and the wording is quite um, strong, I would say, in most disability policies. In other words, it says you must. So if we think insurance company thinks that you require certain treatment and we think that that treatment's going to be, you know, the saving grace, that's what's going to get you back to work, then you must participate. You must undergo this treatment. And if you don't, we can cut off your benefits. Okay. And so you can see that insurance companies have created this language in their policy to favor them, to put them in the driver's seat around what's happening with your health and your care and your treatment 
and ultimately your disability benefits. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. But it is a harsh reality that most claimants have to deal with. The one thing, though, is that if it's causing you harm, if the treatment itself that the disability insurer is putting you through is setting you back from a health perspective or actually causing issues in and of itself that is disabling, then you do need to rally your own doctor and treatment providers to advise the insurance company medically that this is causing issues and that they don't recommend that you continue this type of treatment. You shouldn't have to undergo rehabilitation that is harming you, that is going to set you back from a health perspective, and that generally is not considered reasonable. That's really the driving, uh, you know, overarching theme on most disability litigation. When courts weigh in on it and they look at it, at it and they look at the situation, they really look to see what is reasonable. And from what Paige is describing, she's been on claim for a number of years, John. She said she was approved in 2018. That's four years, I think, if I'm doing my math right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, she's well past the own occupation, any occupation analysis. You know, the, the insurance company would have already accepted that she was totally disabled from any occupation. So maybe they're getting worried, you know, she's 51. There could be another 14 years of LTD benefits that they have to pay her until she turns 65 years old. And looking at that prospect, perhaps the insurance companies all of a sudden being a little bit more aggressive in their tactics and saying, look, if you don't submit to this treatment, we're going to cut you off. If you do submit to the treatment, it's going to you know, get you back to work. Either way, the benefits will end from the insurance company's perspective. And that is not right if what Paige has described is in fact accurate, that our own doctors are saying, uh-uh, it's not going to happen. And if it's not going to happen, then it makes a lot of sense to have that put in writing to really explain the, the symptoms and the issues she's having with the treatment itself, the rehabilitation that the insurance company is offering and submitting her through, and really advocate that perhaps going down that path or continuing down that path in the insurance company doesn't make sense. And then brace yourself and see what's going to happen with your disability yeah. claim. And if it does end, if it is cut off on the basis of these kinds of issues, this is an excellent reason to start a legal claim against the insurance company. Because if it's not reasonable, I can tell you their lawyers are going to know what I know, that a judge is just not going to buy it. And you are going to be getting the compensation that you should deserve from the start. You should not be afraid to go down that road. It starts with a phone call. Get in the legal claim started. That's when you need Tamar and her team uh, on the scene. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred is how you get that ball rolling. And uh, reach out through email as well anytime. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And we'll continue after a short break. Lots more of the Disability Law Show is coming right up. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. And we're back. Disability Law Show continues. Still some minutes to go. You can reach out anytime, not just during the hour of the show. Uh, 1-855-821-5900. Use that for a uh, more discreet conversation with Tamar and one of her uh, one of her colleagues. Help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address. You know, you mentioned uh, during near the, or at least near the end of the last segment about Paige's uh, email and her length of time on disability. You mentioned potentially uh, another 14 years of disability payments on the insurance company's not liking the taste of that is this a scenario um tomorrow where they might say here is a lump sum offer page take this and go away and how should she be gun shy of doing that right away well yes i mean gun shy in the sense that i think you want to get as much advice about your situation as you can 
okay? Because there is an imbalance of power, John, in these situations, mm. right? The insurance company is sophisticated. They're a big company. They, you know, train and educate their claimant, their claims adjusters, rather, on how to approach these types of claims. They have guidelines and policies that they follow. Most claimants don't have any of that knowledge, right? They don't know how to deal with an insurance company. Most people have never been on disability before. And so if the insurance company is coming to you about something, including a possible payout of the balance of your disability claim, then please don't sign anything. Say, thank you very much. I'm going to get some legal advice and go out and do that. There's lots of free consults that are available, including with us. And I think I encourage this because let's think about what's motivating the insurance company for doing that. And Paige's situation, like I said, you're right, they're 14 years of disability benefits. So what are they going to offer her? Two years? Three years? I mean, I think that that's what bothers me is that you know, if you're not sure what the context is of that offer, sure, the lump sum looks great. It's a big, you know, number. It's certainly better than having to deal with the insurance company month over month. I absolutely get that desire. I really, really do. But you don't want to sell yourself short. And so if your doctors are saying, look, your conditions are permanent, we don't see you getting better. It's just going to be more of the same. Maybe it's stable, but it's not enough function for you to actually be working in any capacity. And if that's the case, then you've got to think about, look, do I need this financial support until retirement? Yes, you absolutely do. And so you want to evaluate those pros and cons. Certainly take it back to your health picture, your medical picture. What are the doctors saying to you about your condition? Your own doctors, by the way, not the insurance companies. And then evaluating that and weighing that with what the insurance company is actually offering you. Because I can tell you, I have seen these sorts of lump sums being offered by insurers to claimants directly, and they come with strings, John. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what bugs me the most is that people don't realize they're going to have to sign a release. They're going to release the insurance company forever and ever for any sort of claim once they accept this lump sum. So it's not like if they've only paid you, let's say, two or three years into the future, what happens in year three if you're still sick and not able to work? You can't go back to the insurance company and say, oh, by the way, can you start my benefits again? No. They'll say you sign the release, you're done. And it can have some really significant effects. And so you don't want to go down that path with the insurance company unless you educate yourself about what is going on. What is being offered? What do the numbers look like? What are the strings? What are the terms? You want that evaluation so that you can make a good decision around, look, I've weighed the pros and cons, and I'm either going to accept this or reject this. And by the way, if you reject it, doesn't necessarily mean that's a basis for them to cut you off either, John. If they were to do that, that looks bad on them and they know it. So there's a reason why they're actually offering you this type of uh, a package. It usually means is because they're expecting you're going to be on claim with them for quite some time. And they're trying to save bucks on their end. So always be cautious with sort of a lump sum uh, settlement proposal from the insurance company when no lawyers are involved, because that could be tricky to navigate. You know, when the insurance company accepts that a person cannot work due to their uh, due to their health, okay, we get that. Does this mean they're uh, they're safe from getting cut off, smooth sailing from here on in? I guess that's wishful thinking, right? It is a little bit, unfortunately, because um, again, I hate to keep going back to Paige's email. Thank you, Paige. It's so informative, uh, but you can see, right? She she's been approved for a number of years. She's already been approved for the any occupation period under the policy. Let's talk about that for a moment, John. Let's pause there for a moment. Mm -hmm. That means that the insurance companies accepted that not only are you not able to go back to the job that you were doing when you became sick and unwell and and not able to work, 
but they've also accepted that you can't do any occupation, anything in the world for which you have the minimum requirements, the education, the training and experience that would essentially put you at a job that you would earn at roughly the same level that you're getting as your LTD benefit. So not, not only is it that you're not going back to your original job, you're also not going back to any job that would give you what's called a commensurate wage. So give or take two thirds of what you were making before. So that is a pretty tough threshold. And when the insurance companies accepted that, you would think it would be smooth sailing after that because it's typically not going to change from a health perspective. Usually by that point, after the two-year mark, you, most people have explored many therapy options. They've gone down lots of seeing lots of specialists doing various things that they've done, and they are still not well enough to work. But unfortunately, insurance companies, the way they are, the way that they make profits is they collect the premium and pay out as little as they can. And so if there's an opportunity, even in year four or five, six, to cut off your claim, they will do it. And I've seen it. And it's unfortunate because by that point, you've been out of the workplace for a number of years. You're still struggling with your health. You've been giving the insurance company periodic updates. What's changed? Nothing, except for the fact that they're getting antsy and they don't want to have you on claim any longer. So, you know, it's unfortunate that you can't just sort of relax and hope that you'll be deemed what's called, quote unquote, long duration or permanent duration uh, disability claim. But at the end of the day, it gets tougher for the insurance company from a legal perspective to justify cutting you off after all that time. So that's the key. The onus is on the insurance company to show that there is, in fact, something else that you could do. And if they haven't met that onus, if they haven't done their due diligence before cutting you off, that, you know, there is a medical basis that you could do something else, that you could achieve some kind of function that's enough for you to do some other occupation, then the insurance company doesn't just get to cut you off because, it, you know, it doesn't want to continue paying you. They're going to have yeah. to justify that. And they're going to have to justify that not only to you, but they also as claimant, but they have to justify it to a court because hopefully you're going to pursue your legal rights. You can't leave this money on the table, John. You just can't. It's unconscionable, frankly. And I think that people feel as though this is an overwhelming process. And I can tell you, it is initially, I think, but my hope and expectation is that people talk to us and they understand that this is going to be our problem. This is what we do day in and day out. We know how to do it effectively. We've had excellent results for our clients. And this will allow individuals to continue to focus on their health and give me the tools to pursue the true value of their claim. Because if they've been on claim for five, six, seven years, I can only imagine that this is essentially a foregone conclusion. And there's a, quite a significant amount of time available potentially on the balance of the policy until age 65. I want to get into uh, Manuel's email here. Just we'll at least read it and get into a piece of it before we sure. break. But uh, he says, my sister has worked as a teacher for years. She developed anxiety and depression soon after COVID hit and with having to uh, manage the isolation or health or students and then all that on and off remote learning. Her family doctor and psychiatrist supported her to stay off work this past year. But now they're talking about supporting her return to work, but not back into the classroom. Does the LTD insurer still need to pay her health benefits in this circumstance? Uh, can she hire a lawyer to fight this if she's part of a union? Hmm. Interesting. Well. So I uh, let's start with the union piece of it. But um, I don't want to get cut off if we're going to get to a break sooner rather than later. What do you think, John? 
I think so. We'll do that, uh, take that short break and get into it. So stand by for that. A little bit of a cliffhanger, but that's uh, you know that's how we roll. In the meantime, you want to reach out to tomorrow, you can do so. one 821 5900 the number and that email address I just read from, and you can use anytime as well, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue short break. More of the disability law shows coming up. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto. And back with more. A few minutes to go. The Disability Law Show. Tamara Gopian is your uh, your contact point anytime. one 855 821 Help at uh, And anytime you want to ask other questions, you can do so. It's, uh, it's immediate. It's anonymous. And it's free. It's my disabilityquestions.com. All right, tomorrow let's get into the meat of this one. Manuel's uh, email, sister off, teacher for years, looking at going back, want to get her back, but not necessarily in the classroom. Um, she she wants to fight this thing. She's part of a union, though. Can't she, uh, can't she go forth with this? Yes, she can, John. Yes, she can. So, look, unionized individuals just assume sometimes that just because they're part of a union that all of their rights are related to the union and therefore must be pursued through the union's process their grievance and arbitration process but that's not always the case and in fact with teachers it's not the case so we've helped lots and lots of teachers with their disability claims and so if this is sounding familiar and you want to pursue some legal rights there you absolutely can but the legal rights to be pursued in a situation like Manuel's sister is in respect of more disability benefits. And so I'm certainly not suggesting that what has to happen with her employer, the board or her school or whatever's happening from an employment perspective, that part of it, unfortunately, we can't assist with. The employment aspect is because you're unionized has to be addressed through the union. But the disability aspect I know it seems confusing, listeners, I get it, but I'm telling you, your disability claim can be challenged by way of a legal claim, and you can seek legal advice to assist you in doing that. To get into the more specifics about Manuel's sister situation, the reason why I bring up the employment side is this. The disability benefit is available and payable if you meet the test of total disability. And we talked about it a couple of times in the show. So are you totally disabled from your own occupation? In Manuel's sister's situation, certainly sounds like it because she can't be, go back into the classroom and work as a teacher, which was the job or the occupation that she was doing before she became unwell with her health issues. But as the test changes, the complexion of that changes, right? The analysis changes, John, and it then becomes, is there anything that Manuel's sister can do, anything for which she's got the training for that would allow her to work even with her health issues? And so it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to put her back into the classroom. So mm-hmm. what I want to better understand in Manuel's sister's situation is where is she at in that time frame? Is she within the own occupation period of the policy or is she in the any occupation period of the policy? Because if she's in the any occupation period of the policy, then there might be some basis for the insurer to say, well, hang on, we've already accepted and paid that she's not going back to the classroom. This now becomes an accommodation issue. So the board has to come up with a job that makes sense for Manuel's sister because we recognize that, yep, she is totally disabled from her own occupation, but not necessarily any occupation. So when individuals find themselves in this sort of a nuanced situation, it can be tough to navigate. And I always give the advice, look, you, your fallback position should always be 
to reference what your own doctors are saying, your own treatment providers about your health and your capacity to work. Don't buckle to the pressure of the disability insurer if you can avoid it. I know it's tough, but from their perspective, they're motivated to get you to deal with your employer directly, to try and find another job that you could do there. Because once you do, they don't have to pay you the benefit anymore. So that pressure is real and it can be really, really tough to sort of say, well, hang on, what if my employer can't accommodate? What happens in a situation like that? And there could still be an onus on the disability insurer to pay the disability benefit if the alternative occupation, John, is not commensurate. So think of a situation. I'm going to take it out of the manual uh, email for a moment. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about someone more generally, not a teacher, but someone who's got some decent skills, who perhaps is still disabled from working at any more than 50% and is really not able to go back to their own occupation, but is considering potentially part-time work. In a situation, and, and by the way, it has the green light from their own medical team to right. do this kind of part-time work. Part-time work potentially could be anywhere between 40 and 60% of work. And that percentage really matters when you talk about disability litigation, because the disability policies will talk about, look, this is the threshold for earnings and the threshold for the capacity of work that you have to meet in order for us to not have to pay you disability benefits anymore. Some policies will actually clearly say, look, if you can go out and do another job and do 70% of that job or earn 70% of what you were making before, then we don't have to continue paying you disability benefit. But what if you're only able to achieve 50%? What if, you, medically speaking, that's your, your absolute max threshold, you've tried it, or your doctor has said, you know, look, if you go any more than 50%, you're going to harm your health, you're going to set yourself back a number of years. Don't do it. If that's the case, there could potentially be a top-up claim, a difference between what the insurance company should be paying and what you might be able to earn yourself as a disability Mm -hmm. benefit. A little bit technical. I know this is technical, John, but I want individuals to appreciate that it's not necessarily all or nothing. And the insurance company is going to make you feel like it's an all or nothing. And you're going to think, oh gosh, all I need, uh, what else do I do? I I guess I got to work somewhere. And it must mean that I'm not owed disability benefits. That's not always the case. So if this is sounding somewhat familiar, don't hesitate. We can get into the weeds. We can really analyze the situation, but all roads lead back to your own medical support. So you want to get some clear medical advice from your doctor or your treating therapist, whoever it is who's really supporting your disability claim to understand how much work can I achieve right now? What's realistic? Should I make this attempt? Yes or no. And if you do get that green light, then do understand that there's still possibly, uh, you know, you can't leave the insurance company off the hook necessarily, even if you have returned back to work. And with that, we are pretty much done for another show. Here's some uh, reach out contact information moving forward, either for yourself or you have a family member, colleague that needs some help for sure. Do not hesitate to reach out to Tamar and her team. 1-855-821-5900. The phone number, email help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions, free and anonymous resource for you is mydisabilityquestions.com. Mydisabilityquestions.com. You can use that anytime and we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 640 Toronto.